Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is Lenora Edwards. Lenora is a certified speech-language pathologist with over 10 years of experience treating children and adults. She is the Chief Knowledge Officer at Better Speech, a U.S.-based online service provider with 150 speech therapists working with individuals of all ages. In today's conversation, we discuss benefits and considerations of delivering services online, what a typical online session looks like, the various populations Lenora works with, the difference between a speech delay and a speech disorder, common speech difficulties among autistic people, what Lenora enjoys about working with autistic people, common misconceptions about speech therapy, how to encourage families to use alternative augmentative communication with their autistic loved ones, and advice for parents who want to improve their children's language skills. In this episode, discover what's possible when progress starts at home. To learn more about Lenora Edwards, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our online community on Mighty Networks at community.globalautismproject.org. And now I present you Lenora Edwards. Hi, Lenora. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thanks for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, Rachel. It's great to be here with you. So let's start with a brief introduction. <laughs> uh, so my name is Lenora Edwards. I'm the Chief Knowledge Officer with Better Speech, and we are an online speech therapy company that is throughout the entire U.S., and we are also in different parts of the rest of the world. We're also in places like Japan and Ireland and Bermuda. And we are over 150 speech-language pathologists strong. And something that's incredibly unique is that we all had to have at least 10 years experience to work with this company. So we've all had to have a completely different career and, and have background in a variety of settings in order to work with better speech. All right. And so everything is offered online. Is that right? completely online. And we've been online since long before the pandemic. So we're very comfortable on Zoom and using our platforms. Great. So what are some pros and cons of the online platform? What I love about being online is, especially with Better Speech, we are there when it's convenient for you. We tailor our approach to meet your needs or the needs of your, your family. And scheduling is so much easier because we are right there setting your child up for success in the most comfortable environment, their home. We're in your home. We're on your schedule, whether it's evenings or weekends. We're able to provide therapy services at a time that's convenient for you. And what I absolutely love is we can also record the therapy sessions. And sometimes if you go to an outpatient clinic, the, the parent and guardian is separated from the child, or if you're in a school setting, the parent or guardian might not have any idea what you're working on from that standpoint, 
but with better speech, because we are online and because you have the opportunity to record sessions, you get to be a part of the therapy session and we get to explain what we're doing, why we're doing it, and how to make it functional in your everyday life, which is so important because we get a period of time with individuals versus families and guardians and, and people that take care of them are there the rest of the time. So they can also then take that recording and share it with the nanny or grandparents or whoever is helping to care for the that child in this case, or that individual, because we also work with adults, but you get to show that recording to other people and that offers continuity of care and consistent carryover, especially if you're as I've worked in outpatient settings. And if I've had a little one in my, in my therapy room for 25 minutes and we're at minute 27 and I have 30 minutes to, to have them come in and work with them and then to have them back out to their parent or guardian before I'm getting another, I have two or three minutes to explain and bombard these parents and guardians with a ton of information and then go, bye, see you next week. Let me know how it goes. It's really, really overwhelming. And it's, it's a lot for them because they're trying to understand what we're doing. And it's completely different when I get to be there in their family and coach them and say, okay, this is how you apply it when it's playtime. This is how you apply the techniques when it's getting ready for bed and just tailoring it differently to make it that much more functional for them. Hmm. Yeah, that's great. And I, I do love that convenience aspect. I know some parents are juggling busy schedules. They have other kids to bring to different lessons and practices. So having that option to just do it at home must make a huge difference. Huge, completely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering, because I have my own personal therapist that I see online. We've actually never met in person, but I've heard some drawbacks to the online space, just in maybe building a deeper connection or having more of that personal, like human touch. Do you see that with better speech too? I do see that as a clinician in the area because what I've noticed when I'm in person and working with people, I like to give them high fives. You're, you have the game. It's very tactile. And when you're online, there is a difference. So it's actually something that we work to ensure that there's as much rapport and carry through and connection as possible. So it's pretty funny in, in a therapy room, you might be like, yay, that's a great one and little high five. But on Zoom, you're like, wow, you did great. And your body becomes so much more expressionful so that they understand even more that it really is a big deal. And it just comes across differently. So we do our best to navigate those. And you're completely right. There are times where online is phenomenal and there's times where being in person is great too. What I love with better speech is that it's an option Mm -hmm. and we actually have the technology to create this platform and that we can, for me, I'm board certified by the American Speech Hearing Association, Speech Hearing and Language Association. I am also licensed in five states, even though I live in one. So I do get to connect with those people in Colorado. I do get to work with families in Florida because of that flexibility and because of using technology to our advantage. There are people who are in rural areas and it might take 45 minutes to get to a place for outpatient services. And it's a longer time. It's taxing on the family. It's it's overwhelming. And then you're hoping that you have the best session mm-hmm. and it's just a lot. So the fact that it is an alternative for people or it, not even an alternative, it's an option. And that's a great, great thing of something that we're very 
pleased that we have the ability to do in this day and age. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but I remember dial up when it would go. Shh, <laughs> so. Oh, yes. Yes, I am that old. (laughs) (laughs) So in a session, is the parent sitting close by? Are they kind of making sure the child is attentive? How does that look like? That's a great question. And it depends on each child. It depends on each family, what they like, what they don't like. There are some parents who will be very, very close. And, you know, in this case, We might have a little one that's two years old or somewhere between two and three years old. And so they're not all that acclimated to sitting for long periods of time, which is understandable. So we do a lot of coaching with the parent, but we also do a lot of engagement of taking turns and using our platform and playing games to their advantage. Or we'll also say, okay, well, they clearly want to get up and move. Okay, take me with you. And they take the laptop with them Mm. or they take the smart device with them. And they navigate into their playroom and they navigate into their book corner and they navigate into the kitchen. And the entire time we get to see how they're moving around the environment, but we also get to interact with them in their environment. And we're interacting with parent and guardian because obviously they're pretty close by. When, um, for example, I have a 13-year-old on my caseload right now and parent and guardian are across the room. They can hear me, but they're not right on top of the child. And it works for them. So it really is a person-to-person basis and and we tailor it to meet whatever they would like and whatever is going to be most beneficial. So what different populations do you work with? So as a speech-language pathologist, I often say we work from the neck and up and we work in all ages. So professionally, as a speech-language pathologist, I've worked in the NICU. I've worked with preemies to make sure that they were able to safely consume nutrition and that they could safely suck, swallow, breathe while they're having nutrition. So we've worked in those areas. But then I personally have also worked on the complete other end of the spectrum. And I've worked in skilled nursing settings where I have a 104-year-old patient who I'm working with on swallowing also. So just in our profession, we see everybody and anybody of all ages. And a lot of the time we'll hear, oh, we're a speech therapist. There's nothing wrong with my speech. And I'll say to my client, you're right. There's nothing wrong with their speech, but I hear you're having memory difficulties, or I hear you might be having trouble finding your words and whatever it may be for that individual. I hear you're having some trouble swallowing Whatever it may be, that's truly why we work from the neck and up because we work with individuals on swallowing, but we also work with individuals on their speech, which is their articulation, their fluency, their voice. And then we also work with individuals for the language component. So there's two parts to language. There's the receptive part of language. Everything that we understand is the receptive part. And then there's the expressive part, how we grammatically produce our sentences, how we also use our tone as we're talking. This is the expressive part of language. And then we also see individuals for their cognitive skills. So it may be brain fog. It may be post-COVID fog. It may be memory loss, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, Huntington's. So we really see a variety of ages and we see a variety of speech and language difficulties, cognitive difficulties, and swallowing difficulties. Okay. Yeah. Got it. So I've kind of always wondered this, what is the difference between a speech disorder, an impediment, and a delay? 
So when there is a delay, a delay is typically a time frame as in it hasn't developed yet versus it should be here and we're working to improve it. And then it can also be a difficulty. So there is kind of a gray area, but it can be also to the, the severity. So you might hear they have a moderate difficulty. Oftentimes we'll hear, oh, they have delayed speech when a physician might write it on a note. Clinically, we often say difficulty. So moderate articulation disorder or severe language disorder. And it's indicating a delay in development, but also that there is something that we need to work on. So there, that's why I'm saying there is kind of a gray hmm. for the way that I was trained. There's a delay where we're looking at it and then it's also into a disorder. Mm-hmm. So the disorder would be what it's diagnosed, I guess. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And is impediment just another synonym for like difficulty? It would be. It's more of an old-fashioned one. We often don't say impediment. We'll just say difficulty or disorder. Okay. Sometimes you'll hear, uh, oh, they have a speech impediment, but it's not something that clinically I would write or clinically I would say I would be more specific about that. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. And are there any specific difficulties or disorders that are more prevalent among autistic people? We do find a variety of difficulty with receptive language and then also with expressive language. And that goes into the understanding of language, but also the expressive component. Some individuals with autism have great expression skills and they're able to communicate clearly how they're feeling, but there's that social emotional difficulty that they're experiencing. Then we also see a severe component where they might not be able to verbally express at all. And our intention is to help them use devices, or find alternative means to effectively communicate. Mm, Got it. Yeah. Do you have a lot of autistic clients right now? We have a nice number on our caseload with better speech. And that goes into the component of is online better or is in-person better? And I always encourage people to, to do the research, see what works best for you and your family, see what works best for the child in this case, or if it's an adult who would like to then initiate speech speech services again. I've had a number of people who wanted to benefit from a device and hadn't used one for seven or eight years. And now suddenly they're wanting to use a device. The great thing is, is that we have the ability to initiate those services and to get those supports in place. So we work with another team and we work with them to help get that individual a device if that's what they want. So for individuals who are experiencing autism, you'll notice that speech therapy will weave in and out of their life. It's not you had speech once and then you're done. Sometimes Mm. it is. But other times you might work with a speech pathologist for five years, take a break, come back in a year, take a break, come back in five years. And it's really how that individual is developing, but also how they're wanting to communicate. We naturally want to express our wants and our needs, but also there are times where it's we're able to get those needs communicated and then we don't feel the urge or the desire to communicate more. Hmm. And it's important that we acknowledge that and we're respectful of that and we're not forcing people to have speech therapy services when they're clearly showing signs that they don't want it. But when they are showing signs that they're ready to interact and they're ready to be a part of the therapy session, important that we acknowledge that 
also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point to work with them on their goals too and see what they want to achieve. Mm-hmm. What do you like about working with autistic individuals? They're so fun. I love all my clients, whether typical developing or presenting with autism. I absolutely enjoy working with people and helping them communicate. I think when you're working with individuals who are experiencing autism, it brings a different creativity and a different way of navigating than what we were often trained to do in graduate school. Here's X, Y, and Z. Here's the, here's the box. But when you actually get out into the field, it's a completely different realm. And it truly takes being immersed in those environments to work with children and to work with adults who are experiencing autism, but to develop our own neurological understanding of how can I help this person more? What else do I need to bring? And I love that it also is a team approach. It's great to work with families. It's great to work with physical therapists. It's great to work with other people who know that individual because they see things that I might not see. And it's really important that I, as a clinician, am open to exploring what other people are seeing. And it's not that I don't know. When I was younger, I would think, oh, they're telling me I don't know how to do my job. And that's not true. They're showing me things that I don't know. And why would I know? I have, I'm in this individual's life for five seconds. Why would I know all there is to know about this person? And I really like working with other people to figure out what they need, what they want, and how we can collectively help. And what else can I bring to the table? Mm, Yeah. Collaboration is key and keeping the child's or the client's objectives and goals at the forefront. I know that from my experience as a BCBA, sitting at an IEP meeting, for example, for some reason, people just get very like defensive and kind of tense up Mm -hmm. when they're challenged. And it's not the right approach because as you're saying, we all do need to work together to make sure that there's progress. Completely. And I often think, especially when parents come to us and, and sometimes they may have just gotten the diagnosis for the first time and whether it's an articulation delay or if it's an autism diagnosis, it does not matter to me. They're coming in panic and they're often coming across either you need to fix this right away or I did something wrong. And there's a lot of emotion going on. And I often stop everyone and say, you're not the problem. You did nothing wrong. There's, it's okay where we are. And just quite literally helping them realize I didn't do anything wrong. I was always doing my best for my child. I was always doing best to take care of this child. I didn't do anything wrong. And this simply is where we are. And it really is important because it helps them understand it's not completely up to them and it doesn't have to all be solved today. And it also is an emotional process that people are experiencing They didn't know what they didn't know and they didn't know what to look for. And sometimes they're awake at 2 a.m. and they're down a rabbit Google hole lost in in the abyss. So it's truly important as the team that we come together saying, they're not the problem. Hmm. This happens to be where we are. Let's figure out how we can collectively work together to help this individual. 
I just want to add, because I mentioned about 2 a.m. I don't know if you've ever rolled over at 2 a.m., Rachel, with questions. <laughs> with Better Speech, we offer a consultation where you can actually reach out to a speech-language pathologist. You can schedule an appointment, even right now, if you visited the website, and you'll be able to speak with a speech-language pathologist within the next day. And that's really impressive, because if you called up an outpatient clinic or if you called up a school they might say, okay, great. We'll put you on the on the wait list and we'll see you in September. Mm. And right now it's March. That's a long time to wait, especially for little kids. Their development is going so fast. We don't have six months to say, ah, mm, oh, well, all right, just put it on the shelf. It's just not appropriate. Unfortunately, that's simply where we are, at least where we are in the U.S., that there is a long wait period to work with a speech pathologist. When it comes to better speech, because we are online, because there are so many of us, because we are able to be licensed in multiple states and we have this incredible scheduling flexibility that we're able to provide, we can get you started with therapy services as early as the next day. And that's a huge deal. And it's really, really important if you roll over at 2 a.m. to think, okay, at least I can speak with a professional as early as tomorrow. So we're not necessarily there at 2 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, but <laughs> you can be in touch with one of us as early as the next day. And for me, that that's always been a really big thing. I, I roll over with questions and I can definitely go down a Google rabbit hole and be lost before I know it. Yeah. Well, what are some common signs for speech difficulties that parents might look out for? So some common signs of speech difficulties would include receptively are when you call out to their name at 12 months. Are they, are they aware of that? They, they're ideally aware of that long before that point, and they're responding to their name. Are they localizing? Are they quite literally localizing for sound means? Are they turning their head for sound? Are they aware of other people coming into the environment? Are they aware of other sounds in the environment? And that's really important because those are indicators that they're able to hear, but also that they're aware of their environment. When you have a little one, especially, um, I often tell people when they, when they tell me they're pregnant, I go, great, start talking. So that you're offering a language rich environment to your child, especially when they're in your arms and as often as possible to have face-to-face -face interaction because they're so much going on with our face. We're communicating not only with our facial expressions, we have the tone of voice that we're communicating with. We have our words. We, you can tell when we're really angry and you can tell when we're really soft. You can tell also that we're communicating with our body. So there's so much going on when it comes to communication that it's really important to offer that language-rich environment to your little one. Now, as they're developing and you're offering this language-rich environment, in that window of zero to three months, you're going to notice that they're cooing and that their cries are starting to become intentional. And we'll often hear, you know, when, when they say, oh no, that's the, the mother or the father know, or the guardian knows, that's not that cry, that's this cry. It's mm -hmm. because that baby wants you to know which one. That is intentional communication when they're babbling and when they're just kind of having those spit bubbles the, of, of playing in their crib, that's intentional communication that shows I'm content, I'm okay. 
And when they're cooing with you and when they're cooing without you, these are all communication signs. And that's a wonderful thing. When they follow you around the room as you're walking and let's say you're, you're picking out the clothes and they're quite literally moving their eyes and they're following you, they're paying attention. That is them showing I'm aware, I'm here, I'm paying attention. And it's the, the brain and the body are so absolutely incredible. These neural pathways are constantly building and constantly forming. So it's important to keep that language rich environment open, but also that interaction. When you typically, we often say, by one year old, you'll hear their first word, and the one year old, you'll have one word vocabulary. Two years old, you're going to have two word vocabulary. And what that means is at one year old, they're starting to label things bear, cup, mom, dad. That's a good thing. Then at two years old, if you're starting, if you've heard, been hearing juice, you'll start to hear more juice. At three years old, you'll hear more juice, please. And that's a wonderful thing. They're labeling items and they're showing you, I know what I'm talking about. Things have a name and I know what I want and I know how to get it. All great signs of communication. Hmm, got it. Okay, so those are the specific milestones that parents can look out for. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what are some misconceptions about speech therapy? Oh, that's a great one. The first misconception I would say is that it's only about articulation or that we only help people improve their speech. And in our title, it's a speech language pathologist. That's our, our formal title, but we're the, the informal one would be speech therapist. And people often think speech therapy is simply the clarity of your speech. But we truly work with families and, and children and adults on so many different things. Many, many people can benefit from, from speech therapy. Hmm, great. So I don't know if this is true, but you know, from my experience, I've worked with some kids who didn't start talking until they were six years old. So it's funny, you wouldn't ever think it because of how chatty they are now. But I, I've wondered, is there such thing as an age that's too old to start developing language? For me, I would say no. Okay. <laughs> that's um, a lot like, is it ever too late to get speech therapy? Nope, never too late to get speech therapy. And we do see delayed expression of language or delayed speech in that they're not verbal. But just because they're not verbally indicating to you what they want or what they need or their thoughts doesn't mean that they're not communicating. So parents might say, my child's not talking. And we'll say, okay, well, tell us more. Because they're thinking words, phrases, sentences. And what we're also assessing for is communication. Are they coming up to you and pulling you over to where they want to go? Are they pointing to what they want? Are they doing other indicators to get your attention so that they can get their wants and their needs met? That is intentional communication. There are children who do suddenly, what feels like suddenly, have this language explosion and they haven't talked, they haven't talked, they haven't talked, they haven't talked, and they hit six years old and all of a sudden this tons and torrent of information is coming out of them and you're like, where did this come from? The fact that it connected and, and they were able to say, to start verbally expressing themselves is phenomenal. Children are constantly listening. Their, their brain is pulling in information 
all the time. And so sometimes that might just be a delay in getting those words to come out. That's okay. Other times it might come out in other fashion. And I love that it was as early as our, or yeah, even at six years old, we've seen it later in life too, at eight or at 10. And it's just how that individual is developing. Have you ever seen it like in the late teens or in the twenties? Not me personally, but the, I wouldn't say that that doesn't exist. <laughs> okay. That's interesting. Cause on the flip side, I had another client who was 15 and she was non-speaking. I mean, she had a few one syllable sounds she would make, but for the most part, it was unintelligible. Mm-hmm. So we were trying to teach her how to use an AAC device, Proloco to go. And she was actually pretty good at it, but there was a constant struggle to get her family on board with using the device with her because they always anticipated her needs. So we tried to explain, you know, that not everyone in the real world is going to be able to communicate with her, like Mm -hmm. anticipating or understanding her gestures. But there was on the caregiver side, this hope that she would develop spoken language. And they were a little bit hesitant to push the AAC because they didn't want to hinder that growth. I mean, I think there's some evidence that shows it actually helps it and it doesn't slow it down. But have you ever been in that situation where you had to maybe convince or encourage parents and how did you handle that? Absolutely. And and I've a thousand percent been in that situation. And what we see is with a device the fact that it empowers that individual to communicate, that's a great thing. That is ultimately what we want. We want that individual to be able to effectively tell people their wants and their needs and their thoughts, whether it's with a device or verbally or in any other fashion. That's the ultimate goal that we're, we're aiming for. When it comes to people expressing their concerns, well, I, I really want them to communicate. What can sometimes happen, what can sometimes happen is because we're putting pressure on them to do it this way, it's not developing and they're feeling more pressured and they're not feeling like they can actually get their words out because they have so much else going on. Once they have this device and they're thinking, okay, now I can communicate my, I can tell people what I want. What we often see happen is a relief. That individual now feels supported. They feel like they have some autonomy and that they can tell people what they want and what they're thinking and what their needs are. And and these devices are incredibly advanced at this point. It's absolutely amazing. But the fact that they can do that, they then start to feel more empowered. And then they're also getting more input of language rather than somebody anticipating their wants and needs. If I'm anticipating your wants and needs, you likely will have to express very little to me because I will know when you want juice. I will know when you want to go to the bathroom. I will know when you want your book. I can do that as the caregiver. I can anticipate those wants and needs. I've studied your cues so well at this point. I can read them inside and out. So you, as the receiver of this very attentive care, you have no need to communicate because somebody is doing everything that you need. Once we put that responsibility back on that individual and say, okay, well, let's, let's try a device. They then start to think, oh, okay, 
well, now I have, somebody's not anticipating everything. Now I have to get what I want. And they're encouraged to use their device. And as it becomes more functional for them, as things start to build and they start to learn and they start to grow, they start to recognize they have a voice. They can express themselves and they can express themselves using the device. Now more languages being occurred because they're at more languages occurring. They're actually hearing the device talk. And now they're starting to talk more because of all these other factors. And it's a complete shift. People, people often think using a device is to indicate, nope, never again, not going not gonna to be verbal. It's really a support. If they aren't verbal and they can communicate through the device, great, no problem. But it's often a support that they have and they will then take the next steps toward becoming verbal. Mm. Yeah, that's great and makes a lot of sense. So as a speech therapist, are you trained in... AAC, or is that a specialization? For me specifically, I had a class in AAC, and at the time, it was with a professor who was using AACs all the time. This was her specialty. She didn't dabble in it. This is she had ten years experience in it, at least at the time that I remember, and she knew these devices inside, outside, backwards, forwards, and that was a great thing. Once we get out into the field, we have this great year where it's called a clinical fellowship year. And it's actually a year where we're supervised by another clinician, a clinician who has what we refer to as their C's, their Certificate of Clinical Competence. We as graduates have a CFY, a certificate, and it's a fellowship year. And in that handholding, there's a ton of support. What I often encourage people and younger clinicians as they're coming in is, If you don't know something, lean into it, Mm -hmm. especially when we get into certain environments. Sometimes there isn't a great support for a therapist, a senior therapist to show a younger therapist the ropes of an AAC device, the ropes of how to navigate it. And it's something where you get the best experience by being in that experience and going to places that will help educate you but it also is a responsibility on us to educate ourselves. So for me, I've gone on YouTube. I've learned from other clinicians. I've gone into those environments saying, okay, I don't know anything. Show me. And being open to the fact that I don't know anything, but they do. And how can I learn this? And learning AACs as a clinician is not something that will come overnight. It's something that you will build in your skill set because you're now in the environment because you might have a client that's working with a device and that's great because now you're figuring it out together. But you as a clinician are also making sure you're doing the back end work of figuring out, okay, what CEU classes do I need? How else can I train myself so I can better serve my client? And that's really important. So the best thing, I think ultimately we had one class, but the best experience is to get in there, get the training, get the experience submerge yourself in that environment so that you can help people communicate. That's the most important thing. Right. And because AAC is somewhat recent, well, at least compared to PECS, Picture Exchange Communication System, for our listeners who don't know, is there enough research out there that really lays out 
the details of how to implement some of these programs. Like for example, how many um, icons or how many pictures to start with on one page or what to expect and how like all of the flipping and the clicks and all of those things. There's so much. And I, for me, I look at it individually based on the client. So I've worked with individuals who've, who've used eye scanning because they didn't have the ability to actually use their hands in order to point. Mm. And the fact that we have that technology is a amazing. That individual that I had worked with, she was already well advanced. She knew how to navigate a board. So it wasn't overwhelming for her to see 40 icons on a page. It wasn't overwhelming for her to go to these sub pages. That was a great thing. She quite literally grew up using devices. By the time that I met her, she was 14. For individuals who are becoming new to devices or new to pictures, I start them off where they are. So I will work with them and say, okay, let's, let's look, let's start with three. Let's start with six. Let's start with eight. Especially if they're getting a device for the first time, I have some type of idea of where they are. If I'm not the evaluating clinician, if I'm the treating clinician that says, okay, now we, we need a device. Now let's set it up. In that case, I like to go with where they are and seeing what's functional because now they're getting a program. They're getting an electronic, which can be overstimulating to them. Now they're getting pictures that if I show them a picture, cartoon picture of soda or a cartoon picture of a hamburger, do they recognize what it is in their physical environment? I really like the ones where you can take the picture and tailor the icon so that it looks like what they know it as. It's not just a cup, it's their cup. Hmm. That makes much more cohesive sense for them. It's much more familiar. Versus if we are using the drawings that are on there, which are truly wonderful, I start them off a little bit lower to make sure they feel comfortable. I want to build success with them before pressuring them and saying, "What? there's 20 icons. Where where are we having difficulty? No, no. that's on me. I need to anticipate that and say, okay, let's practice. Show me this. Show me that. Where's this? Where's that? How are we communicating and seeing how functional it is in their environment for a week, for two weeks, for three weeks, for a month, and then keep modifying it and molding it. Cause again, their skills using a device, especially for the first time, even if it's a new device and they're familiar with a device, those skills aren't going to come overnight. They're neural pathways that are building. And we have to be respectful of their mind and their choices of how they want to communicate and what is functional for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right, Lenora, I'd like to close with one last question. What advice would you give to parents who want to work on improving language skills at home? Oh, that's a great one. I would say make it functional. So I I absolutely, so we're, we're on tons of social media components and my intention for those social media components is to show people how to make it functional. At least for me, when I, when I had speech therapy growing up or when I was learning to read growing up, it was very sit down, focus. This is the time that we're going to do it. Versus when you're wanting to build language at home, language is all around us constantly. We're constantly communicating. There's so much information. Everything around us has a name. Everything around us has, we can make it into a song and allow it to be part of your day. 
There's no need to make it feel very formal and sit down and I have to do this. Because we're constantly communicating, encouraging your child to communicate and offering those opportunities are great ways to do that. So when it's an opportunity to communicate, let's say it's lunchtime. Okay, show me which cup you want. A yellow cup and a yellow cup. They don't know that it's the exact same cup. They're going, I get a choice. I want that one. Even though you know it's the exact same cup and it's not a big deal, you're offering that opportunity for them to communicate, for them to communicate that choice, for them to communicate that they have power, that they have autonomy, that somebody isn't always telling them what to do and where to go. They get to play too. And to be respectful of that and honoring of that and encouraging that communication. We want children, we want people to be communicating for themselves and offering those opportunities. Even if you're doing something silly, let's say they're sitting in their seat and you're about to give them food, but you can play around and put a bowl on your head. They're going to look at you and they're going to think you're so silly because you have a bowl on your head (laughs) and you can be really expressionful and really inventive and creative and to have fun. The more fun you make things, the more they're going to grow and they're going to learn. And that is a wonderful thing. Great. Well, thank you so much for sharing your tips with us. I think this is going to be a really useful and helpful episode for parents out there. Thank you for having me. And just real quick, how can people learn more about you and about Better Speech? Visit betterspeech.com and follow us on all those social media tags and That's where we are. We're on YouTube and Facebook and Instagram and TikTok. And if you have questions or you'd like to leave comments, by all means, please do so because we read them (laughs) and we will do our best to tailor content just for you. Great. And I'll make sure we have links to all of those in our show notes. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. As Lenora mentioned, when people are empowered to communicate, they're given an opportunity to express their wants, needs, and thoughts. Rather than anticipating and assuming, we can support those we care about by encouraging them to communicate in whichever way makes the most sense for them, whether that involves an AAC device or not. We should never limit anyone's access to communication. Like Lenora, are you a professional seeking to hear directly from autistic voices and improve your practice? Or are you a self-advocate wanting to connect with other autistic people and share your story? Or are you a family member hoping to support and empower your loved one? Whatever your connection to autism is, you can join our online global autism community to collaborate with people from all over the world. Sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. Let's work together to transform how the world relates to autism. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at AutismKnowsNoBorders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. By doing so, You'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.